0: Well, good afternoon. Uh, My name's Ian. Um, It's great to be with you. I've been really looking forward to being here this afternoon. Coincidentally, we were with Paul and Rachel on Friday night, and Paul said to me, I'm really gutted that I'm going to miss Sunday. And I said to him, oh, mate, that's nice. And he said, no, 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 I didn't mean that. We've got some new drum screens. (laughs) And I'm really gutted that I want to see them in action. I think only friends can say that kind of thing to each other. So, um, But it is good to be with you. In my own church recently, we've been doing a series uh, thinking about stories that Jesus told. And uh, you will no doubt be aware that many of the stories that Jesus tells in the Gospels, we sometimes call them parables, have entered our culture as familiar, almost iconic stories. Many of you will be familiar with the term, the prodigal son. And many of you, no doubt, will have heard of this story that we're going to think about this afternoon, uh, entitled The Good Samaritan. Often the very familiarity of these stories can be a preacher's nightmare, because many of you will know the story, yeah, yeah, we've, we've read the script, we know the story, we've heard it many times, but I want to suggest this afternoon to you that although this story might be familiar... I I think it's possibly one of the most unfamiliar stories that Jesus told at the same time, and um, hopefully by the end we'll see something of that being true. My aim this afternoon, hopefully, is to try and help this story to come alive for us. I hope that it gets under our skin uh, together, and I hope to be able to give you something to take into this week that will perhaps uh, make you think. Let, let me start by giving you two possible sermons that I'm not going to preach. Often, the interpretation that's put on this story is that it is what we might call a morality tale. If someone's going to forward the slides, I presume. So you're onto that, great. Is it a morality tale? Um, after all, Jesus ends this little story by saying, "Go and do likewise." Well, the brilliant simplicity, I think, of this story has given rise to all sorts of noble acts of charity. There are charities and hospitals named after this uh, good Samaritan. A few years ago, I went to Mozambique with a charity called Samaritan's Purse. Um, I, I don't know if any of you have heard of them, Samaritan's Purse. Are you doing Operation Christmas Child? The shoebox on the table is a project that's run by Samaritan's Pierce ultimately, Um, Another example, in 1968, the younger brother of JFK, Senator Bobby Kennedy, was shot in Los Angeles, and he died in hospital the following morning, in a hospital that was established in 1885, and called Good Samaritan Hospital. I think the phrase, the Good Samaritan, is into our language as well. I, I won't put them up on the screen here, but... I just, I just Googled Good Samaritan on Friday. And in the last three days, these were some of the headlines. Good Samaritan helps widowed mum. Good Samaritan rescues woman from fire. Good Samaritan returns a wallet with 800 pounds in it. Good Samaritan pulls man to safety from fiery crash. Good Samaritan builds a bus stop. Don't know what he was doing that for. And... Even in amongst all those headlines, a lot of the other headlines were all about the injustice of a so-called Good Samaritan being badly treated while they were trying to help someone else. Good Samaritan gets head-crushed in while trying to help old lady across the, you know, the kind of thing. Good Samaritan is a term that's very, very familiar to us. My kids have been learning about this story in RE as an example of how all people should love one another regardless of race, creed, gender, sexual orientation. And it's explained to them as a story designed to highlight the triumph of love over prejudice. Uh, I mean, that's another story, what, the, what, what it's used for. It's very interesting how we allow our culture to define what love should look like And then called Jesus in for support in endorsing that view. That's another story we could talk about afterwards. I don't want you to misunderstand me because I think the story does work on this level. If this is a morality tale, we could approach it from the view of the victim. The beaten up traveler. To the thieves, he was a victim to exploit. So they attacked him. To the religious men who walked past on the other side, he was a nuisance to avoid. So they ignored him. But to the Samaritan, he was a neighbor to love and help. So he took care of him. In other words, one group abused him, one group neglected him, and the other loved him. So we could have an application today, couldn't we? Are you a talker? A taker? Or a giver. But I'm not going to preach that particular sermon. On the other hand, here's another one. Some commentators love to see stories like this as a spiritual allegory. You know what an allegory is? It's a picture of of something. I, I was fascinated by this. So, in this story, Jerusalem is paradise. Jericho is this wicked world. The robbers are the devil. And his demons who tempt us to rebel and leave us half dead spiritually. The wounds are really our sins. The priest and the Levite represent the law and the prophets from the Old Testament. That really can't save us and can only pass by on the other side. And the good Samaritan is none other than Christ himself who comes to heal us. He binds up our wounds, puts us on his donkey. But he doesn't stop there. He brings us to the inn, which represents the church. And he asks others there to care for us. The innkeeper is the Apostle Paul. And he pays no less than two coins. These are the sacraments of baptism and communion. And he promises to come back one day to settle all the debts and usher in a new age of paradise. I'm not making any of that up. There are sermons been preached in history along those kind of lines. But I'm not going to preach that sermon either. I don't don't know, maybe some people are genetically predisposed to that kind of romantic spiritualization. The problem with that is obviously, how on earth did Jesus connect with ordinary people if his meaning was so obscure? We can accept that this story works on lots of different levels. But surely the first question to ask is not how does this endorse something in our modern culture, or what does it mean as a mysterious parable, but what did it mean to the people who first heard it? That's got to be the first question to ask, hasn't it? Well, the truth is, even though this story is very familiar, it is also quite unfamiliar. And many people, including my kids' teachers at school, don't know, for example, that Jesus tells this story in response to a specific question that one man in a crowd asked him in public. So I want to suggest a reading of a story this afternoon that takes seriously the fact that Jesus tells it as part of a conversation with a group. No doubt, not that different to a group like this. And the poor chap here who Jesus engages with makes at least two mistakes. And I want to just explore the story together by looking at the two mistakes that he makes. So here's number one. The first thing he did was he asked a great question with a really bad attitude. He asked a great question with a really bad attitude. This is a public setting. If you've got a Bible, you can see it on the page here. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Well, he's got some bottle. We'll give him that. The crowd gathers, and here is a man who Luke describes as an expert in the law. And he stands up, he clears his throat to ask Jesus a question. But Luke tells us that the man was wanting to test Jesus. I think what Luke is conveying here is that this man is looking to trip Jesus up or to catch him out. He's respectful enough. He stands up. He addresses Jesus like a rabbi, teacher. But his intentions are not wholly positive. He's looking to catch Jesus out. The significance of him being a lawyer is very important. I don't want you to think necessarily of our modern-day solicitors. This man is a religious expert in the Old Testament law. And without going into too much detail, the, the, the job of these guys was to have endless debates about what the Old Testament laws for the Jews meant. So, for example, if, let's say, a law said you shouldn't do any work on the sabbath day their job would be to what 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 qualifies of work if i light a lamp is the striking of the match considered to be work i mean they didn't have matches in them days but you know what i mean and they spent days and hours debating the finer details of legal religious requirements this man is described as an expert However, the question he asks is a very good one. Teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That that is a very, very good question. About the eternal destiny of human beings. This is a question about life after death. It's very interesting that in this culture, in, in that culture, this would have been a question that was considered to be vital. What's going to happen to me when I die? And what can I do now to make sure that I inherit eternal life? In our modern culture, this question, I think, is a lurking one that we don't often like to think about. We're possibly more interested in the here and now how can I endure myself? How can I get what I want? When actually, if there is life after death, and God is real, and human life is precious, one of the most important questions we can ask is this one, isn't it? Where will I be 10,000 years from now? That's a really great question. This man asks a great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What's going to happen to me? But he doesn't really want to know the answer, does he? He's effectively putting Jesus on trial in public. So put yourself in this scene. If this was a boxing match, in the red corner, you have the uneducated peasant carpenter. And frustratingly, people seem to follow him and listen to him in astonishment. He's even got a northern accent. It's like someone from Barnsley, you know, he's a peasant. (laughs) No disrespect to anyone from Barnsley. Going to London and the people listening to him, following him. The peasant carpenter in the red corner. In the blue corner, we've got the expert in the law. 2,000 years history thinks he's got on his side. He wants to know who's this new kid on the block? He's an upstart. And what this guy's really doing is standing up, clearing his throat, and saying to Jesus, Jesus, tell me now, in public, in front of all these people, what's your bottom line? How does someone get right with God? I know what my religion says, you're the new kid on your book. everyone seems to like you. What is your bottom line? This question is a test. You've set yourself up as a great teacher. You seem quite popular. Moses we know, King David we know, Solomon we know, Abraham we know, but who the heck are you? Jesus. We're quite proud of our history, and I wanna know what your answer is to this question. I, I think this is quite a critical moment in Jesus' ministry. If Jesus says anything here, and he wouldn't, that contradicts the God-given Old Testament scriptures, this man will condemn him rightly as a heretic and a blasphemer. But if he agrees with the Old Testament, I think this man's going to dismiss Jesus as irrelevant and say, what have you got that we haven't already got there? In other words, what this man's bringing to the party here is a desire to either expose Jesus or bring him ridicule. He's checking out Jesus' credentials. And I want to suggest to you that it is a very dangerous thing to stand up in public, clear your throat, and take the Son of God on. And this man does that. He asks a great question with a very bad attitude. Do you get that? His second mistake is that he should have quit when he realized he was losing. And he doesn't, let me show you what I mean. First of all, Jesus is incredibly gentle with this man. He, he could have pulled him to pieces and publicly made a fool of him. But he doesn't do that. He responds to the man on his own terms. So Jesus very simply says to him, You're an expert in the law. What's your bottom line? (laughs) What do you think? You're an expert in the law. You've been studying it for years. How do you read it? What does all your great learning tell you about the thing you must do to inherit eternal life? So now we have the expert lawyer being quizzed on the law. The man comes to test Jesus, and Jesus turns the question on him. So the man gives his expert lawyer's answer. He says, verse 27, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now that is a great answer. He's quoting there what is known by Jewish people as the Shema from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with everything, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a quote from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus just goes, that's brilliant, Bob on. That's brilliant. Bob on. I, I, I wonder if a few suppressed giggles might have gone round the room or the group at this point. Because what has happened here, the guy clears his throat, tries to look really clever, asks a great question. Jesus makes him answer it himself and then goes, great, correct answer, well done. Have you ever sent a text, a really long, intricate text, telling maybe your best friend about something that's happened to you. And you wait for the reply. And then four hours later, you get a reply and it goes, okay. Yeah, it's so disappointing. You put, it took you twenty minutes to write it, and they go, "Okay." I think that's what's gone on here. He clears his throat. He asks a question. Jesus goes, "Correct. Well done. Splendid." How disappointing! He was so looking forward to tripping Jesus up, and now he looks a little bit stupid. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He says to man, that is great. Your religion is excellent. Your understanding of the law is absolutely first class. Now, go and do it. Go and get on with what you just said. In other words, go and do this today, tomorrow, every day, all day, perfectly and keep on doing it and then you'll live this is what your own religion teaches and it's good so get on with it he deals with him on his own terms an old um bible commentator from a previous century talking about these verses says this we must love god with all our hearts We must look upon him as the best of beings, in himself most amiable and infinitely perfect and excellent. He is one whom we lie under the greatest obligation to, both in gratitude and interest. We must prize him and value ourselves by our relation to him. We must please ourselves in him and devote ourselves entirely to him. Our love to him must be sincere, hearty, and fervent, It must be a superlative love, a love that is as strong as death, but an intelligent love, and such as we can give a good account of the grounds and reasons of. It must be an entire love. He must have our whole souls and must be served with all that is within us. We must love nothing besides him, but what we love for him and in subordination to him. That's before we even get started on the neighbor bit. So now the guy... He's not embarrassed because he's answered his own question. He's now exposed because he's just established in front of everyone else what his own religion, his own religion demands of him. And suddenly he's feeling hot under the collar. He's just tried to test and trap Jesus, and Jesus has trapped him. Christ is exposing his arrogance. Where are you going to turn, Mr. Expert in the law? What are you going to do now? How are you going to face up to your failure to live like this when you know it and yet don't do it? Who's going to help you? How are you going to gain eternal life when by your own admission, the bar is set higher than you can jump? At this point, the man has a choice to make. He could have said, Oh man, Jesus, how on earth... Can I do this? I can't do it. I haven't done it. And I need some serious help here. But instead, what does Luke say? Verse 29. It's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. But he wanted to justify himself. So, he asked another question. He should have quit while he was losing. But he didn't want to lose face. So he says to Jesus, who's my neighbor? It's an old trick if you debate with someone and you get stuck to say something like, well, it depends what you really mean by that, doesn't it? (laughs) It gives you a bit of thinking time. It's a way of saying, define your terms. What is really incredible here is that he passes over the loving God bit it's like he's saying, yeah, I get the God bit. Obviously, I love God with all my heart and soul and strength and mind. But Jesus, who's my neighbor? Christ is wanting him to see his inability to confess his need. And he's looking for a loophole. He wants to excuse himself or minimize the damage to get himself off the hook. So he asks the question to justify himself. He's come to corner Jesus, and Jesus has cornered him. And so he shifts the question onto a technicality: Who qualifies to be my neighbor? So we've, well, we finally got to a story. That's the longest introduction in the history of sermons. Um, why does Jesus tell the story then? Why, why does Jesus tell the story? Is it a morality tale? Is it an allegory? I hope you can see now that this is not told as a nice story to nice people to teach them how to carry on being nice people. Jesus told this story to a two-faced lawyer who thought he was the bee's knees. And this story is graciously designed by Jesus to pop his self-righteous bubble and to shock him and bring him to his senses. So let's quickly look at the story. We won't be long. First of all, a man in need. This was known as a dangerous journey. This, this is a made-up story, I think. It might have been based on something that was in the news, who knows. But the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho descends almost 3,000 feet in 17 miles. It's a very dangerous, steep, winding, rocky path. Perfect for robbers to hide in ambush, waiting for the wealthy. Dick Turpin would have loved it. It was so notorious for robberies and murders that part of this road was called the Red or the Bloody Way and had to be protected by a Roman garrison. In this story, the robbers stripped the man, they beat the man, and they leave the man for dead. It's not even, a th- it's not even theft. They, 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 it's just mindless thuggery. A priest, by chance, possibly on his way home. A lot of priests lived in Jericho. Possibly on his way home from doing a week shifts at the temple. He's on his way home and he thinks, I'll go on the other side. A Levite, another religious servant in the temple, maybe had a little look, but he left the man bleeding the side of the road. The Samaritan comes to where the man is. It's a great contrast in Luke, actually, because the other two seemed to see the man from a distance. They came to the place, but the Samaritan came to the man. He came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to think of excuses, do you? He's almost dead. I can't help him. This happens all the time. If I helped everyone I passed like this, I'd never get home. If he's had his head crossed in by some robbers, they might still be here. I need to get a mover. (laughs) If I get caught here at the scene of the crime, someone might think I did it. I don't have my first aid kit with me and I'm not a doctor, maybe a doctor might come past. If the man's lucky, I'll leave him in God's hands. You don't have to be a rocket scientist here to think of all excuses. But there's a shocking twist here. The Samaritan has an extra excuse. He's a Jew. This man is a Jew. Would he do it for me? If I'd been robbed, stripped, beaten, and left for dead at the side of the road? It's interesting that Jesus never said, Do to others what they would do to you, but do to others what you would have them do to you. In the history of great stories, we know that good stories often come in threes. Even nursery stories have stories with threes. Goldilocks and the four bears wouldn't make sense. The five little pigs and the big bad wolf, there's three of them. We even have it in jokes. Did you hear the one about the Englishman, the Scottishman, and the Irishman? Jesus deliberately sets this up for a punchline and in the story everyone is waiting. They know the first two got it wrong and the third's gonna get it right. What would they have been expecting as a punchline? What this would have sounded like to them is Did you hear the one about the Englishman, the Scottish man, and the paedophile? Or did you hear the one about the Englishman, the Scottish man, and the terrorist? that's an insult to the samaritan man but that's what they would have heard samaritans were hated by jews they were the lowest of the low jews would travel around samaria rather than get the dust of samaria on their feet one teacher says that to eat a samaritan's bread was to eat pig's flesh if you wanted to insult someone just call them a samaritan so Jesus tells this story as a threesome. Two men didn't love, one man did. Two men who were religious didn't love, and one man who was a social outcast did. And just look at how he loved. He never asked the question the lawyer asked, and who is my neighbor? He doesn't get a clip chart out and start, check, who is my neighbor, I wonder. He doesn't take any time to decide He asks no questions. There are no qualifications. It's not relevant whether the man's a friend or an enemy. He gives up his clothes, his supplies. He puts the man on his own donkey while he walks. He takes him to an inn and he doesn't even stop there but puts his own plans aside. He cares for him all night. How do we know? Because the next morning he pays the bill. And even then he promises to leave the man there and come back and pay the rest. What do you see here with this man? Super abundant generosity. It's kind of over the top generosity, isn't it? Listen, I I once was walking through town and bought a copy of The Big Issue from a guy. I thought I'd done my bit. Actually, last Christmas we had some homeless people sleeping in our church over Christmas. We were very proud of that. On the other hand, the council did give us some expenses for it. I've sponsored a few people. Only when they've done really impressive things, though. I've entered a few raffles for charity as well, but I only do that when the prizes are really good. Don't want to waste money. You get the point. Listen, have you done this? You say, well, I do love my family and I would do anything for them. Sure you do. But this guy wasn't family, he was a sworn enemy. And even if in some rare case, someone did do this for their enemy, does anyone actually live like this all the time, every day, all their life? I could tell you, I've done this sort of thing all the time, every day. Total generosity, no strings attached. Unlimited care, all day long, every day, almost bordering on obsessiveness. Do you know who for? Me. But have I loved other people like that all the time? Listen, this is the point of the story. What must I do to inherit eternal life, the man asked. Jesus says this. All the time, every day, all day. We tell this story, give to charity, be nice, share things, be a good Samaritan. All those things are great, but don't confuse that with this guy. He's giving unlimited generosity to a complete stranger with no strings attached, who is his sworn enemy. Jesus says, now you go and do the same. Jesus is very skillful here, isn't he? The man comes to trap him. The man asks him, who is my neighbor? I want to know the terms. Jesus says, I don't want to talk about who is your neighbor. I want to talk about neighborliness. I don't want to debate with you who is worthy of your love. I want to talk about the quality of your love. I don't want to talk about everybody else. I want to talk about you. The poor man in this story can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan's name. He hates him that much. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even bring himself to say his name. The point of the story, I think, is that none of us can live up to this unless we change the terms. But if this is the standard, I, I, I feel, for one, utterly lost. And in the end, I'm only pretending to be good compared to this. It's not that the standard is bad, the standard is utterly brilliant. If the world was like this all the time, it'd be amazing, wouldn't it? It's not that the standard's bad, The problem is, we can't live like that, can we? So the beauty of the story is not that it's a moralistic tale or even an allegory. It is first and foremost a description of a beautiful standard and a very brutal critique of human frailty because no one is truly like the good Samaritan in this story. I was saying to Rachel during the week, I was a bit worried about doing this talk because I don't don't like coming to a place like this as a visitor and being negative. But what I just said there wasn't strictly true. No one is truly like the good Samaritan except one. Jesus Christ. And this is what I want to leave you with and it is intensely positive actually. The great good news of the Christian gospel is that it is not based on us keeping the rules, as brilliant as the rules are, but it's based on the fact that Jesus Christ is the ultimate good Samaritan. He loves the broken, bruised, and helpless. He loves all those who secretly know deep down in their hearts that they're not what they should have been. And the beauty in this story, I think, is found in the fact that even though we are morally bankrupt and helpless compared to this guy, there is one who loves us, who goes out of his way, who puts aside his own comfort, who uses his resources to pay our debts and who pours his grace and love into our undeserving lives to bring healing and liberty and peace and goodness only jesus the ultimate good samaritan here's a man who comes to judge jesus on his terms and he ends up being judged by jesus on his terms i often wonder when i read this story what this man did next i don't know why i do that it doesn't say what he did next what did he do after he disappeared back into the crowd I wonder what you'll do. This week, will you think about your eternal destiny? And will you think about this question, what will you rely on in the end when you strip away all the guff? What will you rely on in the end to save you? Will you trust like this man your own fragile morality and fight against Jesus Or will you trust in the saving kindness of the ultimate good Samaritan who in the end died the death that you deserve in order to bring you life?